which is Isaiah chapter 29. I encourage you to open your Bible so that you can um, have it before you as John preaches to us and we know he's talking about God's word. Uh, So Isaiah chapter 29, starting at verse 1. Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David settled. Add year to year, and let your cycle of festivals go on. Yet I will besiege Ariel. She will mourn and lament. She will be be to me like an altar hearth. I will encamp against you all around. I will encircle you with towers and set up my siege works against you. Brought low, you will speak from the ground. Your speech will mumble out of the dust. Your voice will come like ghost-like form from the earth. Out of the dust, your speech will whisper. But your many enemies will become like fine dust, the ruthless hordes like blown chaff. Suddenly, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with windstorm and tempest and flames of a devouring fire. Then the hordes of all the nations that fight against Ariel, that attack her and her fortresses and besiege her, will be as it is with a dream, with a vision in the night. As when a hungry man dreams that he is eating, but he awakens and his hunger remains. As when a thirsty man dreams that he is drinking, but he awakens faint with his thirst unquenched. So will it be with the hordes of all the nations that fight against Mount Zion." Be stunned and amazed, blind yourselves and be be sightless. Be drunk but not from wine, stagger but not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. For you this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say to him, read this please, he will answer, I can't, it's sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this please, he will answer, I don't know how to read. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us, who will know? You turn things upside down, as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he did not make me? Can the pot say say of the potter, he knows nothing? In a very short time, will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field? And the fertile field seem like a forest? In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The ruthless will vanish, the mockers will disappear, and all who have an eye for evil will be cut down. Those who with a word make a man out to be guilty, who ensnare the defender in court, and with false testimony deprive the innocent of justice. Therefore, this is what the Lord who redeemed Abraham says to the house of Jacob. No longer will Jacob be ashamed. No longer will their faces grow pale. When they see see among them their children, the work of my hands, they will keep my name holy. 
They will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who are wayward in spirit will gain understanding. Those who complain will accept instruction. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, friends. It is good that you can join us as we continue our series in Isaiah. I said this this morning and it worked, so I'll try it tonight. And, and that is, uh, it was my birthday this past week, so thank you to those of you who wish me a happy birthday. If you forgot, well, you should, you, you should feel bad about yourself. But I was told this past week, um, though I'm only a year older, I have aged three years in the last six months. Now, I'm not sure if I'm meant to take that as a compliment or not, uh, but this is coming from a good friend of mine. Um, But but there's a saying in Chinese, and that is, a year older, a year wiser. And that's what we want, isn't it? As we grow old together, every day we're getting older together, that we will grow wiser as well. Uh, But more than that, that we'll grow in our affection for God. Uh, that we grow in our, in our love for God, that our hearts will be more closely aligned with the heart of God as we grow older together. And so that's my prayer. And so let's begin and pray, and pray that this passage might help with that. Let's pray. Almighty Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of our own hearts, we pray that you'll work in our hearts this evening. Help us to see where we must grow, where we must change, how we must more closely conform to Christ and his life. We pray, the Lord, that you might use your word this evening for us and for our sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for those of us who are Christians, who are disciples of Jesus, who believe the word of God, what we believe about the word of God is that it is indeed the word of God, which means then that God's word is always living and active and what i find always profound as a christian is that god seems to always have the right words for his people at the right time and we see in scripture that god's word is always active and living that is it it always does its work we read in hebrews that it is sharper than any double-edged sword it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That is what the Word of God does. And so each week as a pastor, I'm in my study preparing the sermon, reading, thinking, praying through the passage, often on on knees before God, preparing the sermon for the week. And what I always find is that the Word of God always speaks to me first. Now, preachers are always preached to first before they do the preaching. And every week, it is that type of work in my study. And so the work of looking at the Word of God, the the work of studying the Word of God, it's not just a job or a task that preachers and pastors do. It's always a spiritual experience. In the study, it's a bit like the operation theatre in a hospital where God is the surgeon. And it's like heart surgery every week with the bible open and so this past week it was that experience again god with his scalpel cutting right in teaching me changing me 
cutting things out for my good. And so each week, this past week, reflecting on, reflecting on this passage, I'm reminded again, I mean, who am I? I'm just a me man, a me man before the living almighty God. You cannot get anything far more vast, far more distinct than creator and creature. I'm just a mere man before the living God. I can't hide anything from him as I look at his word, nor do I want to. Completely vulnerable before the Lord. And that's the experience of Christians as we read the word of God. Completely vulnerable before God. And that's okay. Because he cares. And because he loves. And so what does God do through his word and by his spirit? You see, when his word is heard... When his word is, is taught and read, the Spirit of God works alongside the word of God. And the word of God always penetrates the heart, pieces the soul, cuts right in, and exposes the deepest, darkest recesses of our heart. There is no hiding from God. And that's what God does when we read his word. He's with his scalpel like an expert surgeon. It's always uncomfortable if we allow God to do his work in our hearts. Always uncomfortable. Always painful. Imagine being, being cut at your heart, being pierced, pieces cut off. But of course, it is always for our good. It is always for my good as I'm sitting there in the study, like an operation theatre. And so this evening, as we continue this series in Isaiah, let tonight be something where it is not my words you are hearing, but it is in fact the Lord Almighty who speaks to you, to your heart. Now just in case there might be some of you here who, who might be thinking, well, my heart is fine. I'm fit. I do 35 pull-ups every second day at the playground. That's impressive. <laughs> I eat healthy food and that is I stay away from tea. I only drink coffee. My heart is fine. Now, in case any of you are thinking that way, that your heart is all good, well, let me share with you a story I heard this week from a good friend of mine. When I went through Bible college many years ago, we had a study group, uh, a group of six of us. Uh, we studied um, in this study group for the four years we were at college, and recently we got reconnected. We're all in, in different places, different ministries. There's one who's a church planter here in Melbourne. We're, we're good friend, I'm good friends with him. An Anglican minister up in Sydney, a Presbyterian minister up in Sydney, another Presbyterian minister up in Queensland. I'm a Presbyterian minister, and there is a full-time mum as well. She's probably the one that works hardest out of all of us. But a group of six, three Prezi ministers, which means we win, but not about winning. But anyway, this week, one of these fellow minister friends of mine, he ended up in hospital. He sent a photo of what he was eating while on his bed, and it was because he went in for a routine check at the GP. His GP noticed that his heart was going a bit crazy, going all over the place, so sent him to the cardiologist. And what the cardiologist discovered was that there was something wrong with his heart. It's called Mobitz type 2. Many med students here, you probably can tell us what that means. But what he told me was that it meant that the top half of his heart and the, second, uh, the bottom half of his heart was not synchronised in its beating and it's going a bit nuts. And so what they did, day surgery, installed some recorder next to his heart to monitor the heart for up to the next three years. 
Now, when he told us that, we thought, man, this is pretty serious. He's a young guy like me. I aged three years. He aged probably only one. But he was in good spirits. He certainly didn't expect that, but he was in good spirits. Didn't expect going to the GP and being sent to the cardiologist and having day surgery. But this evening, that's how we want to come to the Word of God. With this expectation, maybe we might feel our heart is okay, but before the Lord, he might expose something. He might show us something we weren't aware of. He might take his scalpel to our heart. It might be painful, but it will be for our good. And that was what God did with the people in our passage in Isaiah's time. Isaiah, so far, over the many weeks that we've looked at this, he's been speaking out against all these different nations around Israel, around the people of God. He gives this panoramic view of the judgment of God coming on all the nations. But in this passage, the focus now is on the very people of God. He hones in on the people of God, and they will be judged the same. They're just as bad as the surrounding nations. And God takes his scalpel to his own people, the people who knows of the promises of God, the people who had the laws, the people who experienced God. God takes his scalpel to his people and exposes their heart. So let's have a look. Have your Bibles to Isaiah 29. Now these are the very people of God. We're not talking about foreign nations anymore. We're talking about those in Jerusalem, the great city of the great King David. And it is God who will judge them. Now here we see this word Ariel. They're called Ariel. This city is called Ariel. Now the word Ariel has sort of a double meaning. It's in the Hebrew. It's got a double meaning. It can mean the lion city. The lion city. And Jerusalem was like that. It was powerful, it was strong, it was mighty. During their golden era of King David and King Solomon, they were punching way above their weight. The surrounding kings and kingdoms, they came and admired, and, uh, admired them and adored them. So they were this lion city. But, but this word Ariel also has another meaning, and it means altar hearth. Now what is that? Well, the altar hearth was the place of burning coals. In the temple, for the temple sacrifices, it was where God expressed his anger. And so what God is, was perhaps indicating here by calling them Ariel was that, well, you one time were a lion city, but now you will experience judgment. You'll be left a heap of burning and smoldering coals. And if we look at this passage, they deserved it. Just have a look. They lived their lives as though nothing is wrong. They went on year after year, festival after festival, but soon they'll be laid siege to, but yet they're oblivious to it. And so here, look at verse 1, God summons them. He summons them. The word woe here, woe to you, verse 1, it's like a word of summons. That is, listen up, sit down, and listen to what I have to say to you. So God summons his own people to the judgment bar. Verse 1, woe to you, Ariel, Ariel. The city where David settled, at year to year, and let your cycle of festivals go on. Yet I will besiege Ariel. She will mourn and lament. She will be to me like an altar hearth. And when that judgment does come, 
they'll finally know their place before God Almighty. They'll recognize that they are mere creatures. In verse 4, they'll be brought low. They'll speak from the ground. They'll be humbled by God. See, if they won't humble themselves before God, God will humble them. And I suspect that happens quite often in life. If we ever start getting a bit too proud, a bit too big-headed, if we won't be humble before God, God will humble us. He'll make us humble. It is God who always stands in judgment over us, and we can't forget that. But then this judgment of God comes to his own people, but also upon the enemies. Now we know historically the Assyrians, that superpower that swept over the northern region, they've come around, they've decimated the northern kingdom, ten tribes completely wiped out. But now we're told they will not get away for their evil. They've got God to contend with. And if you're fighting against God, there's no hope. How can you fight against God? And get the picture here. They're described like dust to God. Look at verses 5 and 6. But your many enemies will become like fine dust, the ruthless hordes like blown chaff. Suddenly, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with windstorm and tempest and flames of a devouring fire. And this judgment of God that will come upon the enemies will come so swiftly that it will appear like just a dream to them. It will happen so quickly they will not even know what hit them. But then once again we see here, God comes in judgment on his own people and upon the nations. What we're reminded of is the theme of this series. And that is nations, kingdoms, they'll rise and they will fall. But who's the ruler of them all? It is God who remains the sovereign king over all. It is God who is always judge of all. But now though God has made this known that he will judge them, and that judgment is coming upon the people, how do you think they should respond? They've been told, God's going to come at you. How do you think they'll respond? Well, you expect them to at least think, well, we better get our act together before God comes. God is not pleased with us. We better get, get it right. I mean, if you think back to your school days, if a teacher said to you, you misbehave once more, you'll be sent to the principal's office. What do you do? Well, if you're not a fool, you be quiet, you sit down, you behave. But what did they do? How did they respond? Well, the people of God, they had no clue. It was a bit like they're living in la-la land. I mean, firstly, have a look here. They have no clue what God was planning, though God has made it known to them. It's written down in a scroll. There is judgment coming. But they're living like the drunk. They can't see. They can't hear. Their leaders, their prophets, they've got nothing good to say. And so look at verses 9 to 10 now. We read here, Be stunned and amazed. Blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk, but not from wine. Stagger, but not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes to prophets. He has covered your heads to seer. Not only did they refuse to see, they're blinded. They have no idea what God is doing. God gave them over to their blindness. They remained spiritually asleep. And so though the plans of God were written down in verse 11, written down on a scroll, they can't open it to read it. 
And even if they were able to open it, they can't understand it. They were spiritually blind. They can't see the plans of God. And so you see, their problem was not, that, not an intellectual problem. It wasn't that they were illiterate. It was a spiritual problem God was showing them. They can't see because it was a problem of their heart, not their mind. Now remember, this is God speaking to the very people of God. You have to imagine and, and try to understand and appreciate how shocking that would have been. God spoke to them. They've had the laws of God. They had the forefathers and the patriarchs. They know it all, but yet they do not see. They do not understand. And that's because of the problem of their heart. But here we see God knows what their heart is like. And so he comes sort of like the, the first incision with the scalpel. Look at what God says about his own people. He says, you're spiritually bankrupt. Even your worship of me is fake. I mean, that is a damning indictment on the people of God because they were shown, this is how you go to worship me. You go to the temple, you offer sacrifice, you have your high priest, you have your priest, you do what is right, you've got the laws to live by. They were told exactly how you go about worshipping God, but God is saying to them, your worship of me is fake. They knew how much God loved them. They knew how much God was merciful and gracious towards them, but yet they treated God this way. And so look at verse 13. The Lord says, this is damning. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up of only rules taught by men. I mean, just appreciate that contrast. Even on a human level, no one likes fake kindness as we relate to one another. No one likes fake love. No one likes fake compliments or fake praise or fake relationships. It just doesn't work. We don't like it on a human level. I mean, if I were to ever just to give my wife Yvonne lip service and I say to her, wife, I love you, but I do nothing at all in a household that shows I love her. I forget her, her birthday. I forget our anniversary. I forget her at work. I just forget about her. I forget that she's sleeping next to me at night. I mean, that's just lip service, and she'll see right through that. But if we don't like it on a human level, how far worse is it to do it with God? How tragic that is. In fact, how wicked that is. The appearance of being religious, but there's no heart in it, no soul in it, just lip service. Now, what we have to understand about lip service, and we have to ask ourselves that question, lip service might seem easier to do. You know, we can just show people around us that we're, we're genuine believers, we, we love the Lord, we say all the right things, use the right words. It might be easier to do, but it is, in fact, harder to live with because internally we're always conflicted. There was always a conflict between our lips and our hearts, always unsettled because it's always pretend. It is harder to live. But God wants us here and God wants his people here to have genuine, humble hearts of worship. That's not only 
easier to live with, it is the right way to live. And so when I read this passage, which is quoted by Jesus in the New Testament, when I read this passage this past week, I was thinking, I mean, is this God taking his scalpel at my heart? You know, there's no faking our love to God. There's no way I can fool God. I mean, if I try, I'll be the one made out to be the fool. And it's perhaps a question we all need to ask ourselves. It's not for me to look upon your heart. It is for you to, to look at your own heart before the Lord. Are our services of God, is it real? Is it genuine? Is it sincere? Is it wholehearted? Or is it just for show? Is it just lip service? We might be able to fool each other, but there is no way we can fool God. And what will God do with such people? Well, we read on. As brilliant as the human mind might be, God will put the proud in their place. Human intelligence will mean nothing. The brightest and most brilliant minds in our world, no match for God. In fact, the most brilliant minds will be shown to be fools. And if we just think about our world today, how many of the brightest minds in our universities, the professors, the academics, they, they, they're so bright on a worldly, worldly view, but they deny God. And what does God say about such people? They are fools. And so verse 14, God says, Therefore once more I'll astound these people with wonder upon wonder, the wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. And so God is here promising that he will do something that no one could ever expect. The brilliant, most brilliant minds could never have come up with God will, what God will plan. And what is that? Well, keep that in, in the back of your heads. We'll come back to that verse later. But now we come to perhaps another incision on the heart. For the people of God to think that they can hide their innermost secrets from God, their darkest desires, their hidden, hidden motives from God, those who live life thinking that that is possible, they're just kidding themselves. There is no hiding from God at all. No one stands hidden from God. Everyone is exposed before God. In fact, it is really only God who knows our heart and he exposes everything. Look at verses 15 to 16 now. God says, Woe, woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, Who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? He did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, he knows nothing? I mean, just try to picture that image in your head. A piece of pottery with mouths speaking to the potter and saying, you did not make me. I mean, that's just bizarre. In fact, what this is trying to help us see is that it's not just bizarre and weird. It is, in fact, wicked and evil. How dare any creature speak back to the Creator? But this verse is piercing, isn't it? It's meant to be piercing. It puts humanity back in our place as creature. 
But now let me ask you, how do you live when you know that God always sees everything we do, everything we think? He sees right into our hearts. We can't hide any intentions from God, any motives from God. They cannot be hidden at all. How do you live a life knowing that? Well, you must live a life rightly. Now, now there was this famous Baptist preacher, Spurgeon. He gave this story which helps us see that there is no way for anyone to fool God. Spurgeon told this story, which I heard recently, and it's really, really quite brilliant. It's a story, this is a picture of Spurgeon. It's a story about a king who, who ruled over a land, a big land, a vast land. One day, a gardener in his land grew an enormous carrot, a brilliant one, a huge one. He was so happy about this carrot he, he grew. He, he took it along to the king and he said to the king, My lord, my, my sovereign, my king, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or ever will grow. And I want to present it to you as my king, as a token of my love and respect for you. Now the king, when he saw this gardener giving the best thing he grew, the king was touched and he discerned this man's heart. And so as this man turned away, the king said, just, just hold on there. He said to him, you are clearly a good steward on earth. I want to give you a big plot of land freely as a gift so that you can garden it all. Now this gardener, he walked away amazed, delighted, went home joyful, rejoicing. Now in that court of this king, a nobleman, he overheard this and he said, my, if, if this gardener only gave a carrot, he got a plot of land. I mean, I wonder what the king would give me if I gave him something bigger. And so the next day, this nobleman, he came before the king and he was leading this handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my king, my lord, my sovereign, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. And I want to present it to you, my king, as a token of my love and respect for you. But then this king, he discerned this nobleman's heart, and he said, thank you, took his horse and dismissed him. Now this nobleman, he, he was a bit perplexed. He was thinking, I mean, that carrot guy, he got a plot of land. This, this horse I gave this king, he only said thank you and that was it. Now, of course, the king knew and he said to him, well, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. You see, that, that is the wisdom of this king. And if anything, how much more so with the God of the universe? There is no fooling God. There is no hiding our deepest motives from God. It's worth for us remembering God sees our truest intentions. We cannot look into each other's hearts and really nut out what our deepest desires and intentions are. We, we can't really see that. But God can. And so how do you live when you know that God always sees our hearts? Well, the only way to live is to live humbly. We live remembering it is God who stands in judgment over us, over me, not me over God. Only God knows our hearts. 
And so if you think about that, God sees everything. God looks into your heart, sees your deepest, darkest desires. You, you, you do not want to see the light of day. God sees it all. And so the question now is, if God sees it all, what hope is there for any one of us? What hope is there if God exposes our hearts? What hope is there? Well, the answer is that there really is no hope. I mean, who can stand before God Almighty and say, I've got a pure heart, I've got nothing to hide. All my intentions are pure. All my motives are good. No one can say that before God. I mean, there is no hope at all if it depends on us. For the people of Jerusalem, there's no hope for them at all if it depended on them. They're desperately lost. In, in the growth group I, I led on Friday morning with the elder, elderly ladies in our church, we, we talked about this. The world is in a terrible mess. There is no hope for this world that can come from this world. And so what hope is there? If God sees our hearts, see how dark it can be? Well, the only hope there can be is a hope that comes from God himself. Only God can save. Only God can change a heart. Only God can renew a heart. Only God can take that, that scalpel and do the deep work in our heart. And that's what we now see in this passage. You see, the, the landscape of gloom and darkness and destruction, it's now completely turned around. Now remember the problem of the people when God came in judgment. Remember early on, they were deaf. They can't hear the word of God. They were blind. They can't see the way of God. But now look at how God promises. What God promises in that day. And look at this verse, verse 18. It is so glorious. In that day. Verse 18. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll. And out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Remember, they couldn't hear. They couldn't see, but now they can. And then we read on. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. And so who are those who will see? Who are those who will hear? Well, we're told here it is the meek, the lowly, the humble, those who come before God and, and say, I, I've got nothing. You see it all, but I depend utterly and completely on you. But then what will happen to the wicked and the evil? Now these are the opposite and they're frightening, these words. There's no future for them. Those who stand before God and, and make God out to be a fool and say, you know, I've got a pure heart, you don't know what you're talking about, God. Well, they will be shown to be fools in the end. And these are terrifying words we read now, verses 21 and 22. I mean, 20 and 21. The ruthless will vanish. The mockers will disappear and all who have an eye for evil will be cut down. Those who with a word make a man out to be guilty, who ensnared the defender in the court and with false testimony deprive the innocent of justice. I mean, if that is what the people are like, who can save them? Well, uh, only God. Only God can and that's his promise. No longer will the people live with their faces in their palms, so dejected and depressed and drowning in shame and sorrow. But now look at the final verses of glorious hope for his people. Verses 22 onwards. No longer will Jacob be ashamed. 
no longer where their faces grow pale. When they see among them their children the work of my hands, they will keep my name holy. They will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Now look at what God will do to those who are lost. We read on verse 24. Those who are wayward in spirit will gain understanding. Those who complain will accept instruction. Those God brought back will be humble and they will listen. And how is that possible? How is it at all possible that God can at the same time show such kindness, but yet at the same time show justice? Well, it's only possible by the grace and mercy of God as God has promised, and only God can do it. And so that's the promise of God, the promise to his people 2,700 years ago. How did it come to fruition? How do we ultimately see it? How do we see God showing his mercy and compassion on his people, but yet at the same time not compromise on his justice and righteousness and judgment that sins deserve? Well, the answer where we see justice and mercy come together, the answer is the cross of Christ. You see, that was also hinted in this passage in verse 14. God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. It will vanish. Why is that? It's because no one could have ever come up with what God devised in the cross. You see, in the death of God's own son, that was what was required for the salvation of souls. It required the death, the death of God's own son for there to be mercy and justice. And that's why the Apostle Paul, he, he quoted this verse when he spoke of this in 1 Corinthians. And he went on to say, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That was what God was planning all the way back in Isaiah's time that Jesus, the only beloved Son of God, would come and would give his heart so that the hearts of his people would be changed. I mean, think about what that does to your heart. If the Son of God came to do such a thing, to bleed, to die, to bear all our sins, to be punished for our sins, to give his heart for us, it's, it's like God doing heart surgery to us. In fact, more than that, more than heart surgery, it's more like a heart transplant. If Jesus came and gave his heart for me, if Jesus came and gave his life for me, crucified a criminal's death on the cross, how can my heart not be moved, not be touched by that? And so what Jesus came to do was so that hearts like the people of Jerusalem Hearts that are cold towards God. Hearts that are cold towards the people of God. Well, that is replaced with a heart that now knows and understands love and acts in love and mercy and grace. Or a heart like the people of Jerusalem that is callous with pride, with self-righteousness, that is unforgiving. Or well, in Jesus, that's replaced with a heart that is now broken down in humility, in meekness, in gentleness. 
Jesus teaches, if you've been forgiven much, how can you not go on forgiving? Or a heart like the people in Jerusalem that's so distant and far from God, just all about lip service. Well, that's replaced with a heart of genuine, humble worship of God, a heart that is now close to God. And so this evening, as I reflected on this passage this past week, being reminded again on what my heart is like before God, God doing his work in me, there's no hiding anything from God. There's no trying to fool God in any way. That was the problem of the people of God during Isaiah's time. We can't make the same mistake. And so in my study, thinking, reflecting and praying about this, I'm reminded once again, what am I but a me man, a broken man in need of grace? What am I, just a me man, a weak man in need of strength? What am I, a me man, a burdened man in need of Christ? It was good for my heart. And so this evening, what about the rest of you? Could God also be doing his work in your heart this evening? Because in the end, you don't answer to anyone. We don't see your heart. It is God who sees your heart. You answer to God. And so if this evening God is showing you that there is something that is a bit hard and callous within the deepest recesses of your heart, that God is showing you that you've got some hidden rebellion in your heart, if you feel that, if that is being exposed, then don't resist that. But let the work of grace work in you. Let it drive you to the cross. Let it drive you to the cross where you can confess and repent and find forgiveness, complete forgiveness, because Jesus paid it all. You see, the answer that God has in Jesus is that it is always yes and amen in Jesus. You see, this is, once again, how we can have a heart that is close to God. Jesus said himself in the Sermon on the Mount, in our first reading, who are the blessed people? Who are those who experience the favour of God? Well, blessed are not the proud, but the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are not the self-righteous, but the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are not those with cold, callous hearts, but are pure in heart, one broken down by God, for they will see God. And so this evening, for you to reflect before the Lord, having your hearts exposed before God, what is your heart like? Is your heart close to God? Well, that is my prayer for myself and for all of us, that all our hearts are hearts of worship, genuine, humble, sincere, loving worship of God, a heart that is indeed close to God. Let's pray. Dear gracious and loving Heavenly Father, it is so tragic and terrible that even your own people can presume that we can hide our innermost thoughts and desires from you. But we pray, Lord, that your word will work in our hearts, that your spirit will work in our hearts, that your work of grace will work in us, hearts that are touched by the death of Jesus for us, 
hearts that will long to worship you all the days of our lives. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the King and Saviour of the world. Amen.